Friends of God, when Jesus was successfully ministering around Galilee, speaking to crowds and driving out demons and healing people and setting so many free, there was a central group that was highly suspicious of him, and it was the scribes and the Pharisees. Pharisees and scribes were highly educated in Torah, the teaching of Jewish faith, and they ran the local synagogues. Pharisees and scribes set the groundwork for an active local religious life. Pharisees and scribes led local community institutions that were free from most of the trappings that were part of Jerusalem's temple and the Sanhedrin, the religious court. Those larger central institutions were led primarily by the Sadducees, who also had their own scribes, and there were some Pharisees who surely were involved there too, but it's not unfair to say Sadducees equal temple life and Pharisees generally the local life. I am, it seems to me, sort of the equivalent of a Pharisee, a local pastor in a community church with a group of other pastors who try our best to help a local people center its life around adoration and prayer and moral teachings of faith. Pharisee, in and of itself, I hope, is not a bad word. So much of Luke, especially in these central chapters, is set around critiques that are lodged by Pharisees in response to the behavior of this newbie Jesus. And I kind of get that. I resonate with their posture of questioning. I mean, there were major challenges in occupied Galilee, for sure. But things were going as well as could be in their towns with their existing religious infrastructure, keeping things together in that scenario. And then suddenly this Jesus comes along and stirs things up. There were new outbursts from demons that revealed themselves during Saturday prayers when he was there. There were healings that occurred among the pews on a day of rest, not work. There were interactions between women and men that challenged norms, and and there was this strange invitation going out, a genuine welcome being extended to individuals from the oppressive groups in Galilee who wanted to know more about Jesus and his way. That last one was the most concerning of all. Jesus welcomed sinners and tax collectors, And two weeks ago, I preached from Luke 15, and I highlighted how the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and tax collectors and eats with them. And I unpacked with you how the sinners mentioned there were not just your run-of-the-mill bad guys. They were most likely Gentile overlord leaders in the occupation who, together with the collaborating Jewish tax collectors, were somehow now choosing to draw near to Jesus. And I admitted to you that I wanted to grumble myself. Jesus, this seems like risky outreach and unlikely to lead to real change. And yet Jesus, throughout chapter 15 and the first half of 16, told story after story about just how important it was to look for lost tax collectors and sinners. He said that when one such tax-collecting sheep was found, when one sinner coin was retrieved, when one prodigal tax-collector son came home, when one dishonest managing tax-collector changed his behavior, there was exuberant joy in heaven. Then there's a sharp turn in the text in chapter 16, verse 14, which is where we started today. As Jesus got to the end of telling those four back-to-back stories about sinners and tax collectors, Luke says the Pharisees heard all this, these stories about retrieving tax collectors and sinners for the work of the kingdom, and they ridiculed him. They weren't buying it. They didn't see the health and potential that could come from trying to regain a relationship with those who are upholding a broken world. And Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon money. 
And they didn't sneer at Jesus over that statement. I bet they nodded in agreement. Exactly, Jesus, but since serving money and all tax, that's all tax collectors and sinners do, we Pharisees and scribes need to be set apart, distanced from such people. We shouldn't be reclaiming them. Being set apart and faithful to a set-apart identity was what the people of Galilee needed. So thought the Pharisees. But in his introduction to this section, Luke lets us in on a little secret about the Pharisees. They don't say this about themselves. Notice, it's Luke who says this. Despite their critique of the sinners and tax collectors, despite them running the churches, if you will, of the first century, they themselves were covetous too, or as the NRSV puts it, they were lovers of money too. Maybe they couldn't see it in themselves, but they were living in and loving the power and wealth structures that upheld their leadership. And Jesus decided right there, just after his effort to show Pharisees why tax collectors and sinners should be welcomed in, just how at risk they themselves were of not getting in and missing the kingdom completely through their own covetous behavior, their set-apart behaviors in which they chose money and existing structures of power while simultaneously critiquing others for such things. And that's the context for today's parable. Makes a big difference reading this with some context as opposed to just pulling it out of the blue. There's actually a lot of systematic theology that has looked at that very passage as things that tell us like absolutes about heaven and hell. I don't think that's the way it was supposed to be used. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're all bent out of shape about the sinners and tax collectors and ridiculing me for wanting them in this kingdom too. And simultaneously, you're trying to justify yourself as squeaky clean keepers of the local synagogue and righteous in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. That's 1615. Unlike his gracious parables about the joy of finding tax collectors and sinners, Jesus offers a brutal parable to the Pharisees about themselves, going all apocalyptic on them. There was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted every day. And yet at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, which means whom God helps. And he was covered in sores and longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. He was in terrible earthly shape just outside the rich man's door, but continually the rich man paid him no heed, and only the dogs would pay him heed, coming to lick his sores. It's a graphic picture of abandonment by the religious institutions of the Pharisees. These covetous ones, who on the one hand were so critical of the tax collectors and sinners, were still making out pretty well and simultaneously failing to attend to those with very obvious needs of support, like food and basic health. And then Jesus moved in his storytelling from the earthly to the realm of the dead, which was a typical type of, sto of storytelling in Jesus' day, apocalyptic storytelling, but actually Jesus doesn't use it very often. He told of the poor man, now at a feast with Abraham in the heavens, and the rich man down in Hades, which is usually sort of a, a, like a gray zone, but here it's, it's so hot that he needs water, so that's a little weird, hoping for water from Lazarus. And when he makes the request, Abraham says, no, it, it's too late. The time was then on earth for you to embrace the kind of kingdom that honored and included Lazarus, and you missed it. There's a chasm now. And that chasm, says Jesus to the Pharisees in this apocalyptic story, is now impassable. 
Well, if I can't help myself, then please, can you send Lazarus from the realm of the dead to tell my brothers to change their ways and to cross the chasm to a new way of living for God's kingdom now so they don't face such torment and eternal abandonment? And Abraham said, sorry, they had Moses and the prophets. That should have been enough. These kinds of rich religious leaders who have all the tools they needed for a just life right there in Moses and the prophets won't even respond if Lazarus were to come to them from the dead or if someone were to come to them from the dead. So is Jesus really saying to the Pharisees, there's no shot for you anymore, it's too late? Yes, he's really saying those words. But he is saying them with the purpose that the prophets of old said strong statements like this. He tells a story with prophetic shock value that says it's too late in order to compel them to bring about change immediately. It's there throughout the prophets, the same style. Pharisees, wake up. Stop critiquing me for letting in tax collectors and sinners. Instead, join me in that outreach. And most importantly, turn your attention to the Lazaruses of this world. There's need for new community to be formed with people at your own gate. Remember Luke 6, 10 chapters before this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, that kingdom that's coming here now. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled really soon. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh in this new kingdom I'm creating. And woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing, for you will mourn and weep. A great reversal is coming unless you start to live into a radical new way of being love for each other. The parable of Lazarus and the current religious leadership is a high-stakes retelling of the consequences of continuing to walk on by, unfazed by broken relationships, grave disparities, and the systems that create them. I do think that Jesus' choice to share this story right here is a rather harsh story that lands the rich man Pharisees in Hades. It's the result of his frustration of this long day of their ridiculing him for welcoming tax collectors and sinners. You get that wrong, Pharisees, but you even get the most basic things wrong, welcoming the beaten down one at your doorstep. And so what's our takeaway today, friends of God at RCHP? I am not sensing today that our community needs to be slammed with a prophetic smackdown and threats of eternal damnation for intentionally avoiding the Lazaruses around us. That's not what I feel today. And yet, as I reflected this week, I did wonder who are the Lazaruses outside the riches of our feast at RCHP who are excluded still? Are there Lazaruses we are failing to pause for? And though the parable starts by dramatically describing Lazarus as one who is desperately hungry and covered in sores, that is not the whole picture Jesus was creating by telling us that this man was Lazarus. Lazarus is the only named character in any parable that Jesus tells that we have in Scripture. And his name means whom God helped. And the name in Hebrew is Eleazar. And Eleazar was also the name of Abraham's lead servant in Genesis. 
In the intertestamental period, in rabbinical writings and oral teachings, in the centuries just before Jesus, this servant, Eleazar, appears in lots of stories as one of the eight figures who was said to have entered heaven alive and who returned to earth with a purpose. This week I learned in an article by Dr. Alice McKenzie that, that some rabbinic tales feature Eleazar, remember, Greek, Lazarus, walking in disguise on the earth and reporting back to Abraham on how his children are observing the Torah's prescription regarding the treatment of widows, the orphans, and the poor. He was sent, for example, in one story in the Midrash, to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know about from thousands of years earlier, to see if they'd learned anything about hospitality. Spoiler alert, they hadn't. In another story, Eleazar is said to have been sent to, to test if Rebekah was the right wife for Isaac. And the test was, could she draw enough water for Isaac's 10 camels? Okay, a camel drinks 40 gallons times 10. That was 3,200 3, pounds of water. Spoiler, she did it. In another story, she's said to have brought 1.6 tons of water to the gates for a Gentile named Lazarus. Could it be, friends of God, that this is what Jesus is saying? Did the keepers of religion walk right past Lazarus, Eleazar, sent from God, disguised in poverty? When the rich man asks, says, hey, Abraham, send one from the dead to warm my brothers, the answer could be understood as, I already have. I sent you the law and the prophets, and I sent Lazarus to give you the easiest of assessments, and you failed at it. I gave you, like, just someone you had to help, and you couldn't do that. Friends, who is Lazarus in your life? Who are those who have a living and powerful relationship with God, but who maybe are displayed with hunger and sores? Over the past few years, the pace of people arriving here around the church, seven days a week, has dramatically increased. I don't necessarily mean in our pews. We've got a good crowd here, but with the pandemic, just the opposite has happened, actually. We've had a period with slightly fewer people sitting inside with us and more and more around the edges. There are many Lazaruses by our doors, and I don't mean they all have sores. I do not mean they are all hungry. I mean there are many who have a living relationship with God, like Lazarus, and who know of angels and Abraham, and who have something to offer this community. Maybe these Lazaruses can even be said to have been sent by God. Friends, who have we failed to pause for long enough to make a connection? I put myself among the moving too fast Pharisaic leaders, but how about you? How do you assess yourself? Can you, as part of this community that's inside the gate, offer yourself up as a greeter of Lazarus, not first as the answer to that person's problems, but firstly as a recognizer of their humanity and their faith, a listener to their experiences of God? Who is at our gates? Right. Maybe that gate is right here at 19-21 South 2nd Avenue, Highland Park, 08904. Or maybe that gate is online with a Lazarus who sometimes puts something in the chat during service. If you're regularly online, can you get to know that Lazarus for us? Maybe that gate is 
around the Friday night Trader Joe's food distribution, maybe on the receiving end or maybe on the helping and receiving end, because lots of people come here to do both. Maybe that gate is someone who sits on the bench by the thrift shop every night. Maybe that gate is someone you meet near here who mentions they've heard about our community but hasn't found a way to connect yet. Friends, for whom can we pause? I was tempted to take this sermon in the, in the direction of systems. How can Lazarus be a symbol of systems that we need to pause for, to see, to transform, to serve? But the more I tried to go there, the more I found myself forgetting Lazarus, the individual human being so close to the gate. Lazarus, who we walk by each day. Lazarus, who might need a lot, but who offers a lot, too. Indeed, a living relationship with God that is rich for the sharing. A relationship with Lazarus is not a one-way street. Lazarus is sent from Abraham and the angels to consider and critique the community and hopefully to celebrate a new healthy way to be community in and for the world. So friends of God, greet Lazarus at the gate. It's not too late. Thanks be to God. Amen.